Welcome to Encounter Grace, where we come face-to-face with God's work in the world for our good. Join host Jason McKnight as we explore practical issues of community, theology, and leadership in everyday life. Welcome. We're glad you're with us. I'm Jason McKnight, and I'm here in the studio with Ben Hendricks. Ben, it's great to be back. It's always a joy to be here. It's always good to be here together. And, you know, behind the scenes, Kent is running the whole show. He's making you sound so good. Amen. He is, like we were saying, the heart and soul behind this whole operation. The heart and we soul. We just get to be the ugly faces. You you really are the ugly faces. <laughs> but uh, anyway. No, here we're going to jump into today. I love this one. Three Christians You Should Know. Ben, you thought this idea up. We've been doing this now three or four or five times. I love it. One Christian you know, one you've heard of, and one you haven't heard of, but you should. We're going to have a ball today because we're in the week of Halloween. Absolutely. And we were trying to come up with the three top Christians with the best costumes, but all we did was end up with kind of a Reformation edition. I mean, all we had to do was Reformation. All right. October 31. Yeah. So... because the 31st is when Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door there in Wittenberg, yep. October 31st. So it's Reformation Day, even though the kids don't know that. Yeah. Actually, when he was nailing, the, the door opened and some guy gave him candy. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. Wow. Um, I haven't heard that one. Wow. Now, all right. So here we go. So in the Reformation, which, you know, sort of we're talking in the 1500s, give or take. In fact, give a little bit because Ben's going to tell us our first one. But we're going to go and see three of the many people in the Reformation era who matter for us. And again, one you, one you know and why, one you've heard of, and one you haven't heard of but you should. So yeah. who are we starting with today? So we're going to start with John Wycliffe, and I think right out of the gate, I, I love about him just that he's a great reminder, and we'll see this here in a minute, that the Reformation didn't happen with just one guy. It didn't just happen with Luther and then no one else really mattered, but it started with front runners and it ended, and it ended with other guys. Mm. There was a large amount of people that God used, and John Wycliffe yes. is one of them. So Wycliffe was born in 1330 in the village of Hipswell, which is, as everyone knows, naturally <laughs> 200 miles outside of London. <laughs> he was born a sheep farmer. Wycliffe spent most of his youth so farming and working within the family until he eventually did what everyone you know naturally does when you go from farming. He went to Oxford in 1346. So sheep <laughs> Not farmer, even NC State Oxford. <laughs> so sheep farmer to Oxford grad, a man after all of our own hearts. And so uh, I love this. When I was researching, they had they kind of tossed this in as like. So he eventually, he, he didn't end up graduating graduating with his PhD for 26 years. And they're like, well, he had a couple interruptions with the Black Death. And I was like, <laughs> oh, that's it? Oh, well, what a loser. Uh, but, but by this time, in, uh, in 1372, that's 26 years later, he had already become a renowned scholar. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, pretty much everyone was starting to hear his name. And he was already considered Oxford's leading philosopher and theologian. That's no joke. So wow. major takeaway. Dude's smart. Dude is smart. Now, I thought it took every PhD 26 years. It doesn't? Uh, well, uh, if you're going for it, there's hope. It can, if you can fall in the ways of Wycliffe. Wow. <laughs> but then, so Wycliffe moves uh, moves on in 1374 and becomes the rector of the parish in Luterworth, which is, as again, everyone knows, east yeah. of Birmingham in England. And so it's here that Wycliffe continued to make a name for himself, mm. uh, becoming, you know, not always the way you want to make a name for yourself, but becoming infamous uh-huh. for much of the Catholic Church. He, start, he, he, he poked and prodded a lot. So one of the ways is his opinions would constantly place him under scrutiny mm. from the Pope, from other rectors, just 
Ever, lots of people under scrutiny from Rome as he would often voice his distaste for the wealth that the Roman or that uh, the Roman Church, Roman Catholic Church would have. Hmm. So specifically, this happened uh, when Rome had demanded financial support from England, hmm. a nation that was already going through some conflict with France. And people didn't love it. And so he actually came out and was like and advised his local lord to tell Parliament, don't do it. That Rome, is ha- Rome has enough. And he argued that the church already had too much wealth and that Christ called his disciples to poverty and not wealth. So, uh, shocker, to no one's surprise, that made the Pope extremely upset. <laughs> the Pope was having a hard time <laughs> yeah. with his fundraising campaign. Yeah, and, and Wycliffe wasn't helping. Come on. And Wycliffe oh, was, so, so Wycliffe is then summoned to London in the charge of heresy and was later met by, <laughs> uh, by the Pope's five bulls. Uh, and no, that's not just a bunch of bull. Uh, these are the church edicts uh, so that were against Wycliffe, and so, which accused him of 18 counts of heresy. Again, this is no like, hey, let's just slap on the wrist. Like This is serious right. stuff. Heresy. So Wycliffe was immediately given the name. I love this name, especially from where he's getting it, the uh-huh. Master of Errors. Like, <laughs> and I'm going to start calling you that. <laughs> that was I, me in high school math. Uh, I was am, the Master of Errors on my tests. Amen. So Wycliffe later responded to the Pope's allegations at a hearing uh, before the Archbishop of Lambeth Palace in which he said, I am ready to defend, make sure he is, he said this, I'm ready to defend my convictions even unto death. I have followed the sacred scriptures and the holy doctors. And And, and the holy doctors meaning the ancient fathers. Yep. Uh, yeah, great. Um, yeah, that, that was confusing for me when I first read that. I was like, Who could, yeah, thank you. So eventually going on to say that the Pope and the Church were second in the, in the authority to Scripture. This wow, is huge. This is huge. And we're going to see some of the— And, and we're talking 1300s. Yeah, this is— 130 I mean, years before Luther. Which, again, I, we always need that context. Again, people have come before Luther and were saying mm-hmm. things. Like, Luther didn't mm-hmm. come up with these out of, out of nowhere. Yeah, out of nowhere. Uh, and so, again, to no one's surprise— this didn't sit well with Rome. And so Wycliffe was put under uh, house arrest and left to pastor his Luterworth parish until he died in 1384. Wow. So, so here's this guy yeah. that pastored for 12 years. I mean, that's the math, 72 to 84 in Luterworth. Yeah. And yet we still know his name today. Yeah. So why? What's he known for? Well, very quickly, John Wycliffe became known as the medieval Protestant. So mm. this is the 1300s, so kind of towards the medieval point. And again, before the Reformations actually happened. But he's part of the beginning of it, mm-hmm. and part of this great Reformation of what is happening. So almost 200 years before Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the church's door, Wycliffe was beginning to raise concerns and argue many of those same key theologies and principles. Mm. So let me give you a couple examples. He wrote against transubstantiation. So he said, the bread, the bread, while becoming by virtue of Christ's words, the body of Christ, does not cease to be bread. Which is not what the Catholics were teaching at yep. the time. Yep. And so he challenged indulgences. Oh, yeah. It is plain to me that our prelates in granting indulgences do commonly blaspheme the wisdom of God. Like he didn't, he's not soft there. I mean, I read that and I stopped selling them. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll no, start after true. this week. Yeah. Uh, he repudiated the confessional. He, re- he reiterated the biblical teaching on faith. I love this. Trust wholly uh, in Christ. Yeah. Rely altogether on his sufferings. Beware of seeking to be justified in any other way than by his righteousness. Mm. And this is one of his major things. He believed that every Christian should have access to Scripture. Amen. Because at the point, at only Latin translations were available. And so with the help of his friend, John, John, uh, I think Purvey, right? 
I think so. Yeah, we'll, we'll say it confidently. Purvey, everybody. Uh, <laughs> they began translating the Bible into English. And so the church, right out of the gate, bitterly opposed this. Make sure everybody, make sure you hear this, what their reasoning was. He says, by, this was uh, from the Catholic Church. He says, by this translation, talking about his translation, the scripture have become vulgar. So this is the English mm-hmm. translation. The scripture wow. become vulgar. Wow. And they're more available to lay and even to women who can read than they oh, were no. to learned scholars who have a high intelligence. Oh, and no. so here's Wycliffe's respo- his response. He says, Englishmen learn Christ's law best in English. Mm-hmm. Moses heard God's law in his own tongue, so, they, so did Christ's apostles. So here's his point. He wanted people to love God's word, and he wanted them to have access to it and be able to read it. Because mm-hmm. look, if this is a place of life and a place of flourishing for God's people, they need mm-hmm. to be able to read it. That's so, so good. Why does all this matter for us? Again, yeah. Yeah, what's... barely even a pastor has no... I mean, like he, it doesn't seem like he's shaped or changed the world in all these ways, but let me give you two. Mm-hmm. So the English Reformation. So guys like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and so many more were only possible, I think, because of frontrunners who helped pave the way like John Wycliffe. The Protestant Reformation. Yep. Yeah. So Wycliffe's endeavors and unshakable dedication to the authority of Scripture mm-hmm. helped build the foundation in which all the other reformers changed the world. That's right. Like, these are the guys who get the credit, but it was guys like John Wycliffe who, start, who helped start that movement. And so Wycliffe really is that medieval reformer. But here's mm-hmm. a second. Wycliffe was instrumental in the development of the translation of the Bible into English. At this point, no yeah. one was doing it. Yeah. And so though he died before its completion— his credit is the first person to ever produce a complete English translation of the Bible. The only other English translations were of small books or passages that would be dispersed around that everybody would get like a little bit, a little mm-hmm. copy of this, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit of this part. But Wycliffe was putting it all together and eventually would be put all together yeah. after his death. He translated the entire Bible oh, for everyone great. to be able to read in English. This is huge. Yeah. People yeah. were able to read the Bible in their own language. We can't lose sight of how big this is. We can't lose sight of it. And in our own uh, lifetime, God has used the name Wycliffe again because of that very point. He wants the Bible in the language of the people. Yep. And so Wycliffe Bible Translators started in, you know, I don't know, I think the 1940s or 50s, Uncle Cam Townsend, and he was a missionary to Mexico or yeah. somewhere in Latin America. And they, and this little villager said, well, if your God is so great... As Uncle Cam is sharing the gospel to him in this new language, if your God is so great, why doesn't he speak my language? Hmm. And that's what drove Cam Townsend to translate the scripture and to gather around many others like him. And so, and I, and, I, and this is kind of a side note on that, but like I, I, I don't think I had ever really realized how many languages and translations that really means until we went to the Bible Museum in DC, and you go into this room and it's all those on the wall, yeah. and and it's like, oh. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And so it's possible because of guys like Wycliffe. Yeah. Who, yeah. Who's well, next? He, yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, let's move from, okay, so maybe we didn't know much about Wycliffe, but let's go to a very famous name, probably one of the two most famous. Uh, so there's Luther, and then when you think of Reformation, Luther, and then Calvin, John Calvin. Let's talk mm. just a little bit about John Calvin, who we know as the leader of the church in Geneva. You can go to Geneva today. You can think back to Calvin's Geneva. Well, actually, he wasn't even Swiss. He was French, born in 1509. So again, Luther, 1517 with the 95 Theses. So this guy is eight years old when the 95 Theses happen up in in Wittenberg. And he's in France. His father worked for a bishop, Jean or Jean, went to the University of Paris to study for the priesthood. 
Well, his dad worked for the bishop. His dad got excommunicated, and his dad said to the kid, hey, switch to law. <laughs> so here's, here's um, Calvin, this formidable mind at the University of Paris, one of the best universities in the world, uh, and now he switches over to law. And he was known on the campus and in the city as a great, great mind um, and, and pretty strong-willed and strong-minded and possibly even arrogant or forceful about it, but somewhere uh, around 1533, so, you know, maybe he's 23, 24 years old, God gets a hold of him. And this is how he says it. This is um, quoting Calvin now, talking about his own conversion. God at last turned my course in another direction by the secret reign of providence. Think of horses with reins, the oh. secret reign of providence. What happened first was that by an unexpected conversion, he tamed to teachableness a mind too stubborn for its years. For I was so strongly devoted to the superstitions of the papacy that nothing less could draw me from the depths of that mire. Nothing less than God reaching down and grabbing him up. He figured that out. He said that. So that's 1533. Right away, his conversion set him on fire with such a desire to progress that he pursued the rest of his studies with uh, just nothing compared to wanting to grow in Christ and in being a Christian. So his reputation as an evangelical uh, was established and flourished. And in that same year, he had to flee because in that Reformation period, there was back and forth even in France. And so for three years, he had to live in disguise. Can you imagine this? John wow. Calvin with a little funny mustache. Oh, wait, he <laughs> had a funny mustache. <laughs> no, he's going from place to place under assumed names. Gene Calvin. No, I don't know. <laughs> He's just trying it all. Settles in Basel, Switzerland. Wrote an explanation of the Christian faith in simple, accessible terms. First published, uh, I think, in about 1533 or 34. Maybe I'm wrong by one year. Um, but it's called the Institutes of the Christian Religion, hmm. which is Calvin's Institutes, first edition. Uh, he kept expanding and coming back to it over his life. And so what we read today is really from 20 years later, but the first one right back then. And by the way, he dedicated it to the king of France who'd persecuted him because he wanted him to know what I really believe. It's not the lies you're being told. Hmm. Isn't that amazing? That is. These are the institutes of the Christian. So here he is in Basel, Switzerland, outside of France. Um, he's visiting Geneva. And one night he hears a knock at the door and it's Will Farrell. Will Ferrell. Not of Saturday Night Live fame, <laughs> <laughs> but it's another Will Ferrell who lives in Geneva. And he presses Calvin to join him as co-pastor of the Protestant church, the Reformation church there in Geneva. So he did so for two years, fired by the city council. Imagine that. Mm. <laughs> city council fires the pastors back then. But that's where it was. That's what it was. Uh, and then he moves to Strasbourg. Uh, and pastored a little church there of refugees. He was always concerned with the refugees, meaning religious refugees, Christian refugees, nope. fleeing the persecution uh, after, the, after the Reformation there or during that time. Uh, until Will Farrell shows up again and brings him back to Geneva. So 1541 till his death in 1564, he pastored in Geneva. Well, what does a pastor do? <laughs> he helps people grow in Jesus. That very same thing that made him cool to his law studies and desiring to follow Jesus more. That's what he starts doing uh, there as the pastor. So what's he known for? I think John Calvin is known for being the first Calvinist. 
No, I'm just kidding. That was Paul. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just playing. Uh, You know, some people, it's very interesting. Some people hear the word Calvinist and it triggers them. Like other people hear Trump and it triggers them. Are you allowed to joke like that yet? Is it too soon? I don't know. Uh, I'm just, I'm not sure. But anyway, some people hear Calvinist or Calvinism or Calvin and it, and they, they're like, oh no, I I don't, you know, but actually the guy is a really gentle shepherd. Hmm. He's a really serious about the growth, spiritual growth and maturity of his flock. And we remember him for the institutes and for writing commentaries on every book in the Bible, Calvin's commentaries, except Revelation, would have been interesting. Uh, But actually on his deathbed, he wanted to be remembered for how he shepherded his flock and specifically through the spoken word, the preached word. He would preach basically three times a week for decades, just feeding this flock on this day from this text so that they would apprehend more of Christ. Well, why does this matter? Well, uh, Mark Shaw wrote a great book called 10 Ideas from Church History, and and he traces 10 different things, and I love it. And what he talks about in Calvin is Calvin's vision for spiritual growth. So why does this matter for us? We could talk about his institutes or predestination or all that kind of stuff. But let's talk about the shepherding side of Calvin. And Calvin has a vision for spiritual growth. And it kind of revolves in a, in a virtuous or a growing cycle, not a vicious cycle, but a, <laughs> but a, but a good one, you know. And, and it's six things. And he says, first, we need to depend on the Holy Spirit. Boy, it's a good start, isn't it? Yeah. I didn't even think he was Calvinist. (laughs) Depend on the Holy Spirit because God is at work within us. The greatest work is that we are united with Christ. So depend on the Holy Spirit. Second, practice self-denial. Don't always indulge ourselves, but step aside from that. You know, Jesus, if any would come after me, deny himself. For Calvin, self-denial is a question of ownership. Deny that you're the master of your own fate, that you're the owner of your own existence. That's the beginning of it. Mm. I like it. Amen. I like it. So depend on the Holy Spirit, practice self-denial. Third, bear the cross, which Jesus says that. Bear the cross. Expect that suffering is a part of following Jesus. Mm. It's hard to argue with any of these. (laughs) It's hard to argue. No, they're fantastic. They're really helpful. Um, And and I use them in my life, kind of thinking through growing. But, But expect suffering. Not fatalism, stiff upper lip, or, you know, keep calm and carry on. But this idea that the one we're following suffered. So Mm -hmm. let us not um, shrink from it. And was persecuted. So let us not expect that we won't be. Fourthly, how do we get through suffering then without just a stiff upper lip? Focus on the eternal. Mm -hmm. Focus on the eternal. And that's really also helpful for us in a prosperity world, in an ease world, in a comfortable, opportunity-filled existence. Focus on the eternal. It's easy, let me just say this, it's easy if you're a slave or if you're living in a slum in Mumbai to focus on the eternal because life sucks. But we have a really great life, a lot of us, or most of the time. But still, let's train our hearts. By the way, I think that's why singing is such a great way to train our hearts. Mm. And, and I like to sing, so maybe it, it hits me. But, you know, yeah. the gift of music, the gift of corporate worship, and so many of what we so many of the songs really have kind of that ending point thinking forward to the day of Christ's return. Mm. All right, depend on the Holy Spirit, practice self-denial, bear the cross, focus on the eternal. Number five, use all of life for God's glory. If you're focused on the eternal, maybe it means nothing matters. Uh-uh. Yeah. Not for true Christianity, not the way Calvin shepherded his flock. 
Use all of life for God's glory. Every opportunity, every possession, every friend. Let them see more of Jesus through you. And on and on like this. And you can see a hundred verses. Yeah. What I think is so interesting, and you just said it, was a lot of the major critique I see of, of Calvin is critiques of pieces of Calvin, but not him as a whole. That's right. Like it's the, well, he just wants you to check out because all, the only thing that matters, if, if eternity if, is only in view, then nothing matters here. Or right. like we can miss the point of, of all that Calvin is, is offering and giving. Yeah. Uh, and I, then the last one is persistent prayer. Okay. Persistent prayer. Because, you know, we have to keep at it. <laughs> mm. God does the work, as my friend says, but we do the homework. Ooh. And we're doing it by His grace and in His power and, of course, in His Spirit in us, depending on the Holy Spirit. But persistent prayer. I cannot tell you how many times when I've stopped to pray, God changes the dynamic in that conversation. Hmm. And I can't tell you how many times when Susan and I will pray about something in the morning, God has an answer for us by nightfall. (laughs) Not all the time, not a lucky rabbit's foot. God is God, I'm not. But he invites us to pray and call out to him. So Calvin stumbled on this. Stumbled on it. I mean, God showed it to him. (laughs) Ordained to find it. But depend on the Holy Spirit. Practice self-denial. Bear the cross and focus on the eternal but use all of life for God's glory and over it all persist in prayer. I think mm. Calvin's so helpful. And like you just said, I'm sad that people kind of only see a caricature of him yeah. um, because he's a great shepherd and a great friend on the journey for any who'll take up and read. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and then, you know, I always have to, I, you always get the really big guy, good guys. Like I, I, <laughs> I get, know, I love I Tyndall. Get I can't believe Wycliffe and guys like Tyndall. I'm just kidding. So everybody, one of my uh, probably one of my favorite reformers. Well, it's because you're Arminian. You couldn't do Calvin. Oh yeah, it, it burned my own soul a little bit. Uh, we have William Tyndall, last but definitely not least. William Tyndall really is one of my favorite ones that I've just kind of I've gotten to latch onto, especially in seminary, uh, because as a guy who kind of suffered, but also loved the languages just a bit. I got to look to guys like Tyndall. So William Tyndall, uh, maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't, was born in Gla- uh, Gloucester in 1494, excuse me, 1494, and began his studies, not at, not or started at Oxford in 1510, and then later moved on to Cambridge. I guess Oxford was just too easy. You need something wow. better. Uh, Wycliffe. I did he, not just know that. One of those farmers, you can't go there. Yeah. Uh, so it was here that Tyndall grew in his love for linguistics. God really does raise up people for specific purposes such as these. That's and true. so he would eventually, this is amazing to me, be able to speak seven languages. Hmm. He was proficient, just like Jason, just like you are in <laughs> Hebrew and Greek. Uh, and I know a, the alphabet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I forget that. Uh, but had a passion for translation. Hmm. So in his time there in, in, uh, in Oxford, it was just he would translate a lot. He would love spe- like learning different languages and just love studying Hebrew and Greek. Just had a huge passion. So by 1523, his passion for the Lord, the passion for ministry and scholastics in general, had just completely ignited. Mm. And that year he sought permission and, and, and funds from the Bishop of London to translate the New Testament. So now he's doing it with permission of the bishop. Yep. So, he, yeah, he, ta- he goes from his passion to going, hey, what if I took my skill set and said, what if I translated the New Testament? And so what we learned from Wycliffe is, this doesn't always go over very well. Right. So, and Tyndall quickly realized his endeavor, his endeavor would not be welcomed anywhere in England. And so travels to the free cities of Europe. So Hamburg, mm. Wittenberg, Cologne, and the city of Worms. So two years later, 15, this is 1525, Tyndall's New Testament. So he went and did it himself without the, the permission of, of, uh, of the church. 
And so in Tyndall's New Testament emerges, and it's the first translation from Greek into the English language. Mm. So he didn't just take the Latin and, yep. and right. take it to Greek. That was Wycliffe. Latin to English. He oh, went, yeah. yeah. So he, but he, but but Tyndall takes the Greek and take and goes all the way to English with it. Mm-hmm. And so it erupts, and it was quickly smuggled into England, where it was warmly received by the authorities. Yeah, right. Yeah. So <laughs> King, King Henry VIII, Cardinal Wolsey, the Sir Thomas More, among many, were furious. Mm. So More uh, said of Tyndall's translation, it is not worthy to be called Christ's testament, but either Tyndall's own testament, or make sure you don't miss this, the testament of his master Antichrist. Wow. Here's what That's I love. Tough. The irony here. To stifle Tyndall, the authorities decided to have the bright idea of where they would buy up every copy they could. Interestingly enough, only funding Tyndall more. I love when the government gets involved. (laughs) So Tyndall then was forced to move around quite frequently, evading the authorities for nearly nine years with the help of a whole bunch of friends. In England or Europe? Uh, He's just having to move all the way around. So all the way around. Yeah, yeah. So during this time, he commits his life to uh, what he would say is the good works and ministering to the people of the area he was in. So on on Mondays, he visited religious refugees from England. So the ones who had had to leave, exactly what you had mm-hmm. been mentioning. On Saturdays, he walked the streets to minister to the poor. On Sundays, he dined in merchants' homes, reading scriptures before and after dinner. And the rest of the week, he devoted to writing tracts and books and translating the Bible. Hmm. He's something different. Yeah, man. Tyndall formed a close-knit group of friends who continued to help him evade the authorities throughout the rest of his life. Here's the problem, though. When you're on the run and you create a close-knit, you can have issues. In 1535, Tyndall's friend, Henry Phillips, who Tyndall has, who would often eat with and even showed copies of his translations, his books, and his papers, betrayed him. Mm. Phillips lured Tyndall away from the safety of his quarters and into the arms of soldiers. Wow. Tyndall was immediately taken to the castle of Vilvedord, accused of heresy, and later tried and found guilty. During the months of his trial, Tyndall would often reflect on his own teachings, his life, and the goodness of God. And he even would, write, would go on to write this. And he said, Let it not make thee despair, neither yet discourage thee, O reader, that it is forbidden thee in pain of life and goods, or that it is made breaking of the king's peace, or treason unto his highness, to read the word of thy soul's health. For if God be on our side, what matter maketh it who be against us, be they bishops, cardinals or popes wow he read a lot of shakespeare yep maybe he was shakespeare (laughs) but finally in august of 1536 tyndall was was condemned Mm. as a heretic Mm. and on friday october 6th tyndall was brought to the cross in the middle of the town square and was given a chance to recant he refused he prayed and cried out lord open the king of england's eyes he was then bound to the beam strangled and burned at the stake Later, uh, a friend, would, Lord Cromwell, would, lay, or would, would eventually write, they speak much of the patient sufferance of a master Tyndall at the time of his execution. Mm. They would write of how he died and died well. died well. So what's Tyndall known for? I think Tyndall is most known for as the translator of the first English New Testament from the Greek into early modern English. Tyndall's aptitude for languages combined with his, and this is probably the most important part, his unfailing commitment to the authority of God's word accomplished the first complete English New Testament from the Greek. This is huge. 
This vastly impacted the people of, Eng- of England as it increased the amount of Bibles, readable Bibles for the mm-hmm. masses. Yeah. It was also another block of the foundation of the English Reformation. The continued advancement of the Word of God being made available for the masses was, in many ways, part of the secret sauce <laughs> of the efficacy of the English Reformation. It's part of what made it possible that Tyndall firmly believed the words of his mentor, Erasmus, Christ desires his mysteries to be published abroad as widely as possible. I would that the Gospels and the Epistles of Paul were translated into all languages of all Christian people and that they might be read and known. Tyndall believed with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength that the Word of God needed to be available to all the masses, and he ended up giving his life for it. So why does it matter? Hmm. What's the legacy he leaves? Uh, I'll give you two fun ones and then... A little convicting one, maybe at times. That, the first one is that fun. He just impacted the English language, specifically mm, yeah. the way we read yeah. the Bible. Words like uh, he coined many important words and phrases that we just know today. Words that some of these I think kind of blew me away when I when I learned about that Passover, atonement, uh, mercy seat, my brother's keeper, the salt of the earth. Let there be yeah. light. Uh, judge not that ye be not judged. Those are things that were <laughs> phrases that he coined specifically when he looked at the Greek and he, he phrased them that way. We have s- very similar ones to that today, mm-hmm. if not exactly the same. He started that. Yeah, he really he really was modern English. I yep. mean, Shakespeare got the language from him. Yep. And so second, he laid the foundation for other translations. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bibles today are still based on many of his translations. Yeah. Uh, the Great Bible of 1539, the Geneva Bible of 1560, the Bishop's Bible, uh, the King James Version of 1611, of which the RSV translators noted it, the KJV, kept felicitous phrases and apt expressions from whatever source which had stood the test of public usage. It owed most, especially in the New Testament, to Tyndall. Hmm. The KJV gets a, a very large amount of, of its translation from them. Yeah. Uh, that w- when translators of the authorized or King James Version debated how to translate the original languages, eight out of ten times they agreed that Tyndall had it best to begin with. Wow. I love that. I do too. Tyndall was good, and he was right. The SV, RSV, NSB, and even the Living, Trend, uh, Living Bible, which is a paraphrase, have drawn considerable help and an inspiration from Tyndall's New Testament. Mm. Tyndall was no joke of a, yeah. of a translator. Yep. And he, he poured his life into this. But here's the third one. Hmm. I think he is a testimony of faithfulness and conviction. Mm. He was just convicted that the word of God needed to be in people's hands. And he was convicted that it wasn't being. It wasn't that it was being held back for all kinds of different reasons. But he felt like the Lord had called him to use his giftings, that, he, that the Lord had specifically given him for the single purpose for a time such as this. And he was willing to follow that out to any end. And I think for many of us, we feel like Lord, the Lord calls us to many things, but we're often scared of what that may mean for us down the road. Tyndall didn't know that his life would end from this. Right. right. But I think he was willing to pay that price. Why he was willing to do this in the first place, why he even started by asking permission, why he was willing to go to places which who would want to, and willing to do things that which he knew were hard, but he was willing to because he believed the calling that the Lord had given him. And he was willing to give his life for the conviction that he had. I think he's a testimony of faithfulness. And faithfulness in trusting God right to the end, because as yeah. he died, what you just said, his dying prayer was, Lord, open the King of England's eyes, mm. as he died over in, in Holland. And what happened within two years? 
The king of England had an English Bible put in every parish church in England. God answered that prayer in a way that he couldn't have ever imagined, but because he was faithful, as you just said. It's incredible. Unbelievable. Wow, three Christians you should know as we look at the Reformation, as we think about it. One you know, John Calvin. One you've heard of, John Wycliffe. And one maybe you haven't heard of, but now we know we should have, yeah. William Tyndall. Ben, thanks for leading us in this and getting us here. Absolutely. Always enjoy, as I said. Yeah, and thank you all for being with us, and we'll see you next time. This is a ministry of Grace Fellowship Church in Kinston, North Carolina. Visit gracekinston.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram.